1: Welcome into another West of the Rest podcast, where we talk West Coast recruiting. It is Thursday, December 29th, and we are coming to you about a week after the early signing period ended. I am joined by my co-host as always, Mr. Brandon Huffman, the National Recruiting Editor at 247 Sports. Brandon, happy holidays. How are you? I'm good, Blair.
0: Happy holidays to you and yours and your first Christmas with your little guy. I'm sure that was a lot of fun. and. You know, that's the whole reason we have Christmas, right? To to see the glow in the little kid's eyes and the gifts that they get under the tree, not unlike some of these college coaches got
1: a week ago. Exactly. That's a good way to to bring this all the way around to, to recruiting. It was interesting last week during the early signing period, you were not able to travel like you were supposed to. We had teased it a little bit on the show previous to signing day, but I made it out to Florida. I was a part of the 24-7 Sports National Recruiting uh, Show for that signing day special. You were supposed to be in Nashville. The travel was obviously something that just didn't work out But it was, I think, a little bit interesting for me being away from the little one ahead of his Christmas and now he's got his first birthday coming up. Everything's piling up. We're about to go take him for his first haircut. I mean, where has the time gone, Huff?
0: It's crazy, Blair, because then you end up in a situation not unlike us, where your oldest is home from college, but she wants to hang out with her friends that she hasn't seen for a while. And you hang out at Christmas, but then the whole day, she's like, okay, I think we're going to do this and that day and go watch this on that day. And you're like, wait a second, we're, I, I thought you were hanging out with us. You know, it's life comes at you fast.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and speaking of of life coming at you, at you fast, signing day it has come and and it's gone. Uh, obviously, there's still the traditional signing day in February, and we're going to get into some of the top players out West that did not put pen to paper and are still waiting to make their decisions. We're also going to look ahead, Huffed, because you and I are going to be in person out in San Antonio next week for the All-American Bowl. It's going to be a, a big week for a lot of these All-Americans for the evaluation process and also to... It, in a way, kind of stack up some of these players in their final exposure to high school football before they make their way over to the college ranks. But let's begin with some takeaways. We usually overreact to begin the show, but let's let's take a step back and, and maybe look at what we experienced during signing day. And my first big takeaway, and, and I hate to begin on a negative note, Huff, but I I saw what happened with Mateo Uyangalele, the five-star defensive lineman from St. John Bosco in Southern California, who signed with Oregon. And for all the talk, right, about, you know, we run the West hashtags and taking California back hashtag. I think everything that came with the arrival of Lincoln Riley and also the move of USC over to the Big Ten, my takeaway is that USC had to find a way to get Mateo Uyangilele to stay home and they did not. He's going to be a duck. And this seemed in a way like an uphill battle for such a long time. It it appeared like Mateo wanted to branch out and go on his own and go do something else. Ohio State had been rumored as a potential landing spot. USC had some late smoke. There was a lot of buzz that the Trojans were perhaps going to be able to keep him home, but he ends up And Eugene Huff. And I I think this is one of those situations that similar to what they experienced under Kayvon Thibodeau when he made his decision to leave Los Angeles to go and play for Oregon. I I think this is going to come back to bite USC And it's one of those things where these big linemen, these big edge rushers, these big bodies don't grow on trees out West, especially in California anymore. And when they do, you have to be the first one there to snatch it up. You have to go and grab that apple and they didn't get this apple off
0: you mentioned KT and then the next year the same thing happened with Justin Flo remember there was a lot of buzz at the end that hey he was going to end up staying home you know there was a lot of time a lot of talk for a long time that he was going to go to Clemson not unlike Mateo and Ohio State and then down the stretch it started to build the buzz hey he's going to stay home Ultimately, Oregon ends up flipping him. Well, not flipping because he was never committed, but ultimately, Oregon ends up getting him. And here we go with Mateo. Looks like he's heading out of the region, maybe Georgia, maybe Alabama. Uh, then it was Ohio State. Then it was, oh, he's going to stay home. And the longer a recruitment lasts, the more likely the local school ends up being where the kid picks. And he picks Oregon. So it, it was quite a, a day for USC. And, you know, I mentioned this last week. If you had gotten. Malachi Nelson, Makai Lemon, and Zechariah Branch, who all announced in December of 2021, to announce in December of 2022, all we would be talking about was USC's close, closing like they did. But they still ended up with three five-star players, the most five-stars of any school in the Pac-12. The problem was those guys committed so long ago that it really did feel like USC left a lot of meat on the bone come signing day. And really, the only recruitment they were in it for down the stretch or a decision being made on signing day was for Matea. Now, there's a couple of uncommitted guys that we'll talk about later in the show that USC is right squarely in the mix for. But in terms of the early signing period, coming off a year where Lincoln Riley had a full cycle, I think maybe there was a little bit of disappointment with, with USC and how they closed, ignoring the fact that they did get three elite prospects to commit a year ago. It's just that they happened a long time ago rather than this week when we're used to seeing USC make that run.
1: Yeah, still finished with a top 15 class. And like you mentioned, I think that's on the heels of what they were able to accomplish on the recruiting trail in 2021. But in a way, it just seems like a missed opportunity, right? To get all the buzz that you had, to build all the momentum that they built I think, in a way, exceed expectations on the field, and to miss an opportunity to really capitalize that on the recruiting trail. And sure, you know, there's a few guys that are still out there that could potentially land, and we're going to get into some of those in a bit. But I look at a guy like Corey Foreman, who's at USC now, and you know, sure, he had that game ceiling interception against UCLA in the Rose Bowl to cap off the season. But it, I think you kind of forget, right, that he was a huge recruiting win because, in a way, he's been a he's been a disappointment. He hasn't. But really, been consistently on the field. He hasn't made an impact like maybe we would have expected a, f- a former five star to have. You know, only thirteen total tackles last season as a sophomore. You know, he had eleven as a true freshman. So, I mean, twenty four tackles total, Huff o- over two years is just not going to get it done to be an elite playmaker at USC. And maybe I'm I'm not saying that but Mateo We and looked at that, but I'm also you know maybe figuring out okay how how is USC missing on these guys, right? How are they not loading up on on these big time prospects that could go in there and, and play right away? It just seems like for me, that was, I think, a big takeaway. And, and that's not to take away, I guess, pun intended this time, from what Oregon's able to do, right? Their their, their finish was was otherworldly, considering that they lost Dante Moore to UCLA late in the process. They didn't end up flipping. Peyton Bowen ultimately flipped from Notre Dame. He ends up flipping again to Oklahoma. That would have been kind of the cherry on top. But Oregon closed dramatically, right? That was a, a great finish by the Ducks and, and Mateo certainly i think accentuated that 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 whole class and how they were able to close signing day what was what was one of your takeaways from signing day huff
0: oh i thought you know what was interesting is you know you mentioned oregon and the way that they kind of otherworldly closed and that was even with the drama of Peyton Boeing, getting his commitment on Wednesday morning only to see him sign with Oklahoma a day later. You know, what a roller coaster of a week for Oregon to you know, lose Dante Moore at the beginning then to get Austin Novosad early Wednesday morning to, to get and flip Jaden Lamar down the stretch, obviously to get the commitment of Mateo. And to lose Peyton Bowman still not really hamper it, um, and then the news that Bo Nix was coming back. Obviously, that was the kind of day that that Oregon had. But I, I want to say one of the the more, more striking things for me in this class, and you know. I hate to to be a negative guy because we talked back in the old iteration of the West of the Rest just how well Cal had done in recruiting in that 2021 cycle during the pandemic year. Remember, they were one of the two schools in the Pac-12 that actually had a junior day before the NCAA shut things down that mid-March. And they ended up with a really good class. And you know, it's kind of weird to see Cal with all the inherited advantages they have being in the Bay Area and such a strong year in Northern California. One of my biggest takeaways was not only that that Cal's class ended up ranked 12th, but It was how small Cal's class was. They were in the mix for a number of players in the 2023 cycle, a lot of Northern California kids, and they finished runner up or they finished in third for a lot of guys. So they were dancing, you know, kudos to Marshall Charrington, their director of recruiting. They got there, but I think their offensive struggles this year really kind of hampered. Obviously, there's a lot of changes on the offensive side of the ball at Cal, but, you know, I think back to the first year I was covering recruiting in the 2003-2004 cycle and they got Marshawn Lynch and Verdell Larkins and then they went on this tear during the the late 2000s getting into Deshaun Jackson, you know, getting job at best and, and, and Cal was one of those cool schools and they've done a good job of recruiting for the most part under Justin Wilcox but, you know, one of my takeaways from this is, man, what's going on in Berkeley that it's hurting their recruiting to the point where Arizona State had a coaching change in the middle of the season, Colorado cut loose half of their class, and Cal ends up with barely double-digit signings.
1: Yeah, it's. I think it's a reflection also of, of kind of the up-and-down nature of, of how Cal has been performing on the field. Uh, then you couple in, in a way, the optics of the UCLA move to to the Big Ten. It just seems like right now Cal can't really do anything right and it's hard for a program like that to have to rely on the transfer portal considering some of the the requirements academically and having to go through admissions and we all I think we all understand kind of the, the difficulties that the UC system presents in that way so in a way you're kind of handcuffing yourself um, and you're hoping to really hit it off in the transfer portal and then make up for some of the players you're losing in the transfer portal right they already lost one of the players to UCLA I think their top two quarterbacks are, are off the roster now too as well and there, there's just so many things that that are stacking up uh, against Justin Wilcox and that staff and you know it, it just seems like kind of a far cry like you mentioned right with some of the the momentum or, or some some of the the optimism that had been built there in Berkeley to to, to kick things off I, I did want to Take away another thing about signing day in particular was maybe the the buzz around Deion Sanders at Colorado from mm-hmm. a national perspective, right? And and the eyeballs that that has brought over to the West Coast and and particularly to the to the Pac twelve, even if they don't flip some of the guys, right? Like a Cormani McClain who ended up not signing and committed to Miami. You know, never sent in his letter. You know, there were rumors that his that that he hadn't woken up or that he had he hadn't sent an alarm. And then the mom came out and tweeted that you know he wasn't gonna he wasn't gonna sign it. You know, send in his letter. There was rumors, obviously, that being a corner that Dion Sanders was up to his old antics. And even if they don't get some of the guys that they are rumored to get. I think it still gives Dion that firepower heading into the spring, right? Heading heading into that, that big moment where he's going to be able to bring in a bunch of the 2024 prospects. The 2025s are going to be able to go and meet with him for the first time. I think that's going to be a destination school for a lot of prospects in the spring. And I, I just felt like it was really important for Colorado to close the way they did. They they ended up, Huff, if I'm looking at this correctly, in the top half of the Pac-12 recruiting rankings. they are Number six. When you factor in kind of the the players that they were able to get, they ended up getting three, four stars to sign. This is a program that we're going to have to watch, I think, really closely now. And and I'm not sure they're going to be recruiting a whole lot out west. I, I just don't see how Dion doesn't capitalize on his connections down south or in the state of Florida or, or out east or you know wherever. I, I just feel like that's going to be his comfort zone. Uh, and and obviously the, the transfer portal is going to be a big thing for him as well too. But it, it's it's going to be really interesting to see who he prioritizes and and which kind of prospects he goes after out west
0: well and you mentioned it with the transfer portal a year ago when jackson state had the shock heard around the world with travis hunter announcing his flip from florida state to jackson state a year later Travis Hunter factors in, but this time it was more expected than a year ago when he flipped to Jackson State. It was him kind of waiting until the night. And hey, you know what? Kudos to Travis Hunter for building his brand, getting his subscribers up on YouTube to announce his decision. Even though I think we all figured he was going to end up at Colorado, that was still, you know, kind of Dion's way of putting a, a topper on the day by getting the expected to happen. Because even though we all... Thought that all signs were pointing to Travis Hunter following him to Colorado, there was still that speculation that, hey, you guys, maybe, just maybe an Alabama or a Georgia pulls off a little bit of a stunner of their own and ends up getting Travis Hunter, but ultimately, Dion got him. And I think, obviously, we saw, you know, just how quickly USC turned things around this year by using the portal as heavily as they did with 20 players. I think that you're going to see Colorado really go that route in 2023 There was a lot of speculation. Maybe they could flip Blake Purchase, the number one player in Colorado, before he ultimately signed with Oregon. Um, Then there were some other guys that Colorado's been mentioned with you. Talked about Cormani McClain. Maybe it was too late to get that buzz with the 2023 recruiting class, but there's going to be some guys that haven't signed that come February. It won't be a shock to see Colorado linked to them. But I think it's building up to what kind of impact Dion's going to have in that 2024 class. And if the way he was getting Colorado talked about, ju- maybe didn't sign those guys, just getting talked about leading up to 2023 signing day, that should strike some fear into the Pac-12 with what they can do with the full cycle.
1: Yeah, I just don't know if Dion's going to be for, for everyone, right? Like I don't know if he's kind of the flavor of of, of every recruit. Uh, there were some talks and I had heard from a couple people that during that final visit weekend when he had a number of, of prospects on campus to kind of check things out and to meet and greet and all that it felt like Dion according to people that were there was maybe a bit more interested in filming you know his his back behind the scenes uh, you know kind of documentary stuff that he's doing and all the YouTube and all the videos and all the hype reels and all that then it was for him to actually meet and and talk to, to players and all that so you know who, who knows what, what it actually looks like, but I, I think in recruiting, sometimes that's all that matters is is the perception, right? And what it looks like, or what people are saying, or 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 what Dion is, you know, what what Dion's latest catchphrase is going to be. So that's that's going to be, I, I think, really interesting. I'm I'm fascinated to see what the spring will look like. But I, I did feel like Colorado earned some some recognition on signing day with what they were able to do going nationally and getting some players, and despite being late on some guys. I started off negatively, right? Kind of questioning why USC was, was not landing a, a player like Matteo and Galilei. You went negative too, Huff, with with Cal. Let's 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 wrap up with with a positive one. What else do you have?
0: Kyle Whittingham, baby, our Lord the, and Savior. As the as the founding members, the the co chairs, the co president of this Kyle Whittingham Stand Club, our King, our Lord, our Creator, not Creator, but our Lord, Kyle Whittingham. The only thing better than Kyle Whittingham on December December 21st is going to be on January 2nd when he has carried off the Arroyo Seco's field known as the Rose Bowl on the shoulders of his Utah players winning a Rose Bowl after signing probably the best class that they've had in terms of their ranking in many years. I've said this a lot. This has been something that I know it's getting nauseating to BYU fans, sorry, um, I'm sure it's getting nauseating to a lot of Pac 12 fans. But I've said this now a couple of times over the last week. This is what the Pac 12 feared. I, I said Dion was striking fear in the Colorado, but the reality is we know what Kyle Whittingham could do. We know what Kyle Whittingham has been able to do. And I don't think there's. I had two Pac 12 coaches hit me up after they saw a column that I wrote, basically saying, yeah, you nailed it to that extent. Like they know Kyle Whittingham with even more talent. Is going to be dangerous. What they've been able to do in terms of evaluation and development has always been better than anybody in the Pac 12 over, in my opinion, over the last decade. But now he's maybe what four years in a row with really good classes, really elite talent in state, and then plucking some key talent from other parts of the country. That's not what the Pac 12 wants to see. You don't want to see a phenomenal coach, a phenomenal developer, a phenomenal evaluator start getting better talent than they've been winning with. And they've been winning a lot with you cannot ignore what Utah did recruiting wise. You can't ignore what he's done on the field the last couple of years. And you know, it's interesting because every conference has like that one coach or maybe there's, you know, in the Pac 12, there seems to be a couple guys like that. Kyle Whittingham, Jonathan Smith. Where there, you know, you have very polarizing coaches in other conferences, and the SEC, you have many of them. In the ACC, you have many of them. But it, it's rare in this day and age to have a coach that, for the most part, the whole conference respects, the coaches respect, the fans respect, and you know it, it's going to take. We we finally got our first Kyle Whittingham shade. In recent years that I can remember but it came from the ACC with you know the yearly wine from Pat Narduzzi of somebody tampering and now he's accusing a player that Utah flipped from Pitt of being tampered with no Pat that's called recruiting and I refuse to believe that our Lord and King Kyle Whittingham would do such a thing
1: no he would never do you think Kyle Whittingham would be capable of such things when he's also you know in in a way kind of a victim of of, of that right like I think other teams are looking at Utah's roster and saying, "Hey, look, like you know, they come here, right? Like they they are also succumbing to, to some of that stuff." And and you know, I, I think the thing that was interesting that you brought up is, you know, he's in a way kind of become an institution, right? Like in 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 himself, like he's he's uh, created like an identity that already transcends. Like Utah football, like I think he's already what that that program is, and I think whenever he steps aside, you know whether that's after winning this next Rose Bowl or in a couple of years, or they've already named right the the coach in waiting, and, and that would be Morgan Scalley, the longtime secondaries coach, you know former player, defensive coordinator. He, he kind of has a a long resume, but I think they. They are going to build around the foundation that Kyle Whittingham has set, and that's going to be the identity that they want that team to look like forever like they're Mm -hmm. always going to reference Kyle Whittingham as like the standard for what Utah football should look like. And, you know, other programs you can go and and say, all right, well, listen, that didn't work. We're going to switch to an air raid or, hey, look, we're, we used to be a run heavy team, but now we want to go spread or, hey, look, like we were really, really good defense, but let's just, you know, switch things up to a three, four, you know, like I think it happens so much in college football. There's so much variance, but the continuity I think at Utah is making them special. And, and, they're they're uh, capitalizing on that on the recruiting trail we will take a short break we'll get into some of the top uncommitted players and look ahead to the all-star games you're listening to the west of the rest podcast back on the West of the Rest podcast, Blair Angulo with Brandon Huffman, soon to be in San Antonio, Texas for the All-American Bowl. We're also going to look a little bit into the roster for the Under Armour All-America game, which is in Orlando, Florida. And if you have your questions about that game, make sure you tag at Greg Biggins. He will be in Florida uh, on Twitter. Send him. He's not verified, but I can I can guarantee you that is the, the Greg Biggins at Greg Biggins on, on Twitter. Huff, we mentioned some takeaways from signing day, there were a number of high-profile players that didn't end up signing, uh, including Deuce Robinson. He's the number one rated tight end in the country, a five-star from the state of Arizona. I switched my crystal ball on signing day to georgia from usc i have heard from a number of sources that the bulldogs are now the, the the front runner and considered the leader for the dynamic pass catcher the dual the dual sport athlete you know we he's had obviously his name thrown around a, as a potential mlb draft selection as well and when you consider georgia's tight end development I think in particular, what coach Todd Hartley is able to do in in making sure that all the guys get their shine and they all, you know, in a way kind of get some recognition and and get some attention on the field. Deuce Robinson, despite them already signing two four-star tight ends, I don't think he looks at that and says, oh, you know, I I can't really play there. I think he believes in himself enough to go in and compete. And, And I like Georgia and where they sit for Deuce Robinson right now, Huff.
0: Well, and not only that, there's still the possibility that they could add Walker Lyons as a part of the 2023 class, but he won't enroll until the fall of 2024. So can you imagine coming off Brock Bowers, Darnell Washington, you know, then you get a a Deuce Robinson in 2023, you get a Walker Lyons technically in the 2024 class, that is going to open up doors for Georgia's passing offense that, you know, they've been able to exploit these last couple of years. but. Todd Hartley, man, you mean, you're, you're doing absolute work and deuce with all the buzz that it was USC, it was USC, it was USC during the summer. And now Georgia coming in here and it's hard to ignore. You look at what they've done at the tight end position, what Brock Bowers has done to really, you know, kind of take Georgia from being a good tight end school to a tight end factory and keep in mind this is with eric gilbert who was one of those generational tight ends who never really has gotten his career on track went into the portal after transferring in from lsu i mean they even have maybe the most freakiest athletic tight end in college football and he's barely seeing the field at georgia but that shows you that georgia utilizing the tight end is so key and if they can get deuce and then you know walker Lyons took that official visit down there back in in november opened his recruitment up after the resignation of david shaw i mean can you imagine georgia just continues that that run where they can stash a walker lions for a year from now todd hartley's living right
1: yeah, living right. I'm sure he's bound for an extension at some point. Just build his statue. Uh, you know, just get out in front of it and build a Todd Harley statue there in, in Athens. Two other players in the state of California, among that top twenty-five in the player rankings, along with Walker Lyons. Roderick Pleasant Huff did not sign. He's probably the f- one of the fastest recruits in the country, probably top three right now, certainly a, a dynamic corner. And then Leviticus Sua, the four star linebacker from modern day in, in Southern California, also didn't sign.
0: That is going to be, you know, two recruitments that are definitely worth tracking with Leviticus Sua having what a final three of Arizona Stanford, UCLA announcing at the Polynesian Bowl. But I think all eyes are going to be on Roger Pleasant in California. And, you know, with, with Deuce Robinson, obviously USC is involved, but he's got national programs involved. Walker Lions, you've got USC involved, BYU, Utah, Stanford, but Georgia's involved. But Roger Pleasant is one that I think is going to be heavy, just like Leviticus Sua. It's going to be very Pac-12 centric. His- which has the great track program, the esteemed track program there, and the history of letting their football players do track. Are they going to be able to come back into the Southland and get Roger Pleasant? His USC, which has had a monopoly on Sarah players for the most part over the last 15 years also has a history of their track guys or their football players running track can they keep Roger Pleasant in Los Angeles or is this UCLA with some of their newfound momentum with the the flipping of Dante Moore can they pull off what would be somewhat of a stunner and get Roger Pleasant after maybe being on the outside looking into now potentially being in that top three right there that's the the recruitment that you know aside from Deuce the Roger Pleasant recruitment's the one that's going to really be fascinating Just Just because there's three programs that he seems like a natural fit from a track standpoint for both Oregon and USC, but then also UCLA's need for corners could get him on the field. Maybe their track team isn't what it once was, uh, but all three of those, you know, would love to add a player with the speed. I mean, Roger Pleasant is knocking on the door, folks, of potentially going sub-10 in the 100, sub-20 in the 200. The the reigning 100 and 200 champion in the state of California should run away with both of those. Again, next year, there is absolute speed, but he's not just a track guy who plays football, Blair. We we saw with the amount of pick sixes he had, with the the dynamic ability he showed this season, he is an elite defensive back with elite world-class speed.
1: Yeah, type of player that sees the field right away. You're going to be able to catch him at the Under Armour All America game. uh Among that group, a number of players out west. Interesting storylines. So if I want to see Zachariah Branch maybe race Roderick Pleasant, that would be a lot of fun. uh I, I like Iapani Lalaulu the four-star offensive lineman from the state of Hawaii who signed with Oregon. I want to see him in one-on-ones uh, in 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 that setting. uh Collins Achiampong, the the uh, Southern California player who ended up signing with Miami, was previously committed to Michigan. I I want to see kind of how he has developed physically and, and whether or not he's he's still a bit raw or, or all physical upside? Uh Jaden Rashada a quarterback will be there. A lot of really good storyline stuff uh, at the Under Armour game. But before we go, let's look at the All America Bowl. The roster includes a number of players already signed, including Tausi LeCano, signed with Texas, made that big announcement on signing day uh, over Oklahoma. Spencer Fano, another player from the state of of Utah. Utah who who ended up signing with Utah. I'm really interested to see the battles between those two in practice. What about you, Huff? What are you looking forward to about San Antonio?
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously the ability to watch Tassili Akana, you know, we, we've we seen, I mean, the guy's bounced around from being listed as an edge to being listed as a linebacker to, you know, being both. I mean, he's a pass rusher. He's a, He can play off ball. I'm really excited for some of the national guys to get to see him and where he really excels and that's in pads. Most of these guys nationally only seen him in seven on seven in the t-shirt and short setting but we know what kind of player he is with the pads on so he's the guy that I'm certainly excited to see and then the other one that I'm really really looking forward to is just watching Jurion Dickey another guy that we have seen at a number of events over the last three years in the t-shirt and short setting but he is so dynamic with pads on with the helmet on with the shoulder pads on playing real football and with some of the DBs that are going to be playing in this game I really look forward to seeing Jurion Dickey come Maybe be the the go-to receiver for the West, and he's already a five-star. We've had the debate between Dickey and Zechariah Branch, and then we've had the debate between Dickey and a Carnell Tate and a Brandon Ennis, who are also playing in the game. And I look for him to fully cement himself as no worse than the number two receiver in the country in this class, like he's already rated. But can he again show just enough that maybe he sneaks past Zechariah Branch and is the number one receiver
1: in this class? oh boy that i mean that's you're bringing fire there to the end of the podcast uh jurion dickey versus Zachariah branch for wide receiver number one uh after signing day so imagine if we flipped them how how those usc fans how the oregon fans would react um i'm actually i i kind of want it to happen now because i want to see what, what will happen uh huff safe travels to you as we see each other down in texas uh later this weekend and uh i will tease that we will be doing an in-person show
0: love it looking forward to putting up that, that fire that i just brought with
1: a couple of colds <laughs> all right that is brandon huff and i am blair angulo and our friend for our producer lance glenn thank you so much for listening to this edition of the west of the rest podcast